13 through 27. Now were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sarah. I usually manage to get the mics wrong at some point along the way too, so thank you for figuring that out. Uh, good morning again. As always, it really is a privilege to be able to come before the Lord and worship. And as we've started this series where we're beginning to consider this idea of mission and even prepare to hear from and figure out ways that we can continue to support different missionaries that we as a church um, have really all around the world in a number of ways. I wanted to use this opportunity to consider again God's greater mission and how we fit individually and as a whole into it, um, which can be a hard thing sometimes because we often have different ideas of how we would like things to be done or the manner in which we think things should be done or, well, we just have our own ideas about all kinds of things. So as I was thinking this through and what it means to really understand God's mission and to be brought into that, I wanted to come back to this passage in Luke because here Luke is reorienting the mission of his disciples. And in this, we can see so much of what they bring to the table, as we'll see from the text. And then we'll see how Christ kind of takes that and turns it a little bit of a different direction. So please pray with me before we dive into his word together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your patience with us. Your love that does not leave us where we are, but takes our hand and sets us where we need to be, and then even points us in the right direction. So we pray that you would do that work in our hearts this morning. By your word, through your spirit, because of your son. Thank you, Father. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as I was thinking this through, I was brought back to uh, my days in the Boy Scouts. Any of you guys ever do the Scouts? Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Battalion? The like, yeah, there you go. Um, one of the skill sets that they always like to teach in these kinds of groups is orienteering. 
You guys have any concept of that or done much of that yourself? It's when they say, what every young person needs is a compass. And then they need to think that they can explain to every young person how with nothing but this compass, you can find your way anywhere in the world. And I believe many people can. We have many sailors and adventurers and others who have done these things. Um, It's really a good thing that God did not call me to be a sailor or an adventurer. (laughs) He would have had to equip me rather differently than he has. But I, I, I was never all that great at it, but I always really enjoyed the adventure of orienteering. What, what you would do, at least what we would do, is you'd often be given a piece of paper and a starting point. And this was kind of like old school pirate treasure map things, where it says, all right, align yourselves to 273 degrees and proceed for 94 paces until you reach the big tree. Now, remember, you're in the woods, so who knows which tree that is. Um, And then you walk, and then it says, once you have reached that point, adjust yourself to 37 degrees and follow again for however many paces, and there would be this large, somewhat convoluted course to hopefully arrive at a specific proper destination. But at each moment along the way, you have to begin with the right location and then also the right direction. And I think as we consider Scripture and as we consider who God is and who Jesus is and how God has equipped and provided him for us, um, but we can often be quick to celebrate, ah, I love who you are. But then we can struggle a little bit with the direction that he points us. In the book of Luke, the way that uh, the author has set us up to understand Jesus is there's this person who is stepping into a particular context that has a very clear of who their Messiah should be, a very clear vision of who he should be. Uh, They've got a very strong sense of what they would like to happen and how they would like to have it happen right now. And that includes a number of political things, that includes a whole lot of religious things, and it includes especially a group of people who feel like they should be exalted within it. And so over the first eight chapters of Luke, what you have is a person who is constantly subverting the expectations. And even as he more and more and more clearly reveals who he is and his identity, and even as some of his followers start to say, yes, this is the guy, then he also very clearly and very boldly says, yes, and I'm going this way. And then they also start to clearly and boldly say, no, 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 no. We'd really like to go that way. And that's a lot of where this tension comes in. It uses a lot of the language of new wine and old wineskins. And it's a hard moment. You see, the people, as they listen to Jesus more and more, they start to ask these right, the right question, who is this? And so Jesus starts to kind of pick up on this theme, and Luke also, as he's telling this, he's heightening the tension, and he talks about how Herod, the king at the time, was also wondering, well, who is this guy? And then how all the people, as they respond to hearing Jesus, also start saying, well, who is this? Who could possibly speak with this kind of authority? And the disciples themselves start to wonder, and so Jesus puts it before them, just before our text, And he says, who do the people say that I am? And Peter, God bless Peter. 
answers. And they give kind of the, you know, you could be Elijah, you could be one of the prophets. And Jesus presses and he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, answers very boldly, the Christ of God. And this is it. This is the truth. This is the moment that all of history, this is the person that all of history has been building towards ever since Adam and Eve took of the fruit, ever since God looked the serpent in the eye and said, one day someone's coming for you. This is the one. This is the one that people named their children hoping that maybe he would be the one. This is what all of history has been waiting for. And Peter, in this moment, in this declaration says, you're the guy. And Jesus says, yes, I am. And then you look at the next verse, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to everyone. Well, no, no one. And why is that? Well, elsewhere it says because Jesus knows what is in the hearts of men. And he was not willing to entrust himself into this. In, in Matthew's account of this, well, we'll get to that in a second. Rather, he turns to them and he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Um, you see, what he's tying into here, he, he takes this idea and he uses the term Son of Man. And this is a term that might not necessarily have too many connections immediately for us, but for all of the people at the time, they know exactly who the Son of Man is. This comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where Daniel is prophesying that one day one will come who will overthrow all the evil and dark powers and who will finally institute the right reign and rule. And so for the people of Israel at the time, there is a very heavy-handed dark power, the power of Rome that has been holding them down and repressing them and killing them. They have military outposts and standing within their cities and even around the temple itself who is actively repressing the people and even sometimes repressing the worship of God and holding them down. And so when they say, you are the Christ of God, they're saying, you are our rebellion leader. You are our geopolitical power maker. You are the one who is going to overthrow all and help us to stand the way that we deserve. And so then Jesus says, the son of man, and they go, yeah, I knew it, he's the guy. And then he follows up with all the things that they don't want to hear. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then this confusing bit, and on the third day be raised. This isn't what any of them were expecting, and truly, it's really not what any of them were even wanting. Uh, in Matthew's account of this, Peter, again, God bless Peter, um, once Jesus starts saying this, he pulls him aside. He's like, whoa, come here, Jesus. You have to stop saying that. That, that cannot be the way. And do you remember Jesus' response to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus will not be that person. 
Peter's expectations are, no, come on, man, build me a kingdom. Build us a kingdom. Let's kick some butt. And Jesus' response is, no, absolutely not. Suffering, rejection, death. You see, proper identity without proper mission can still end up being dangerously wrong. I want you to see, Jesus did not rebuke Peter saying, get behind me, dude, or hey, get behind me, guy who's distracting me, or get behind me, plan B, we'll see how plan A goes, and then we'll pull that in line. He says, get behind me, Satan, and he refers all the way back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. This kind of by my own strength, dominion and oppression and power is not at all what Jesus was up for. Instead, he is reorienting what the mission is. He's reorienting our understanding of it, setting us in line with the compass because our problem is that we are quick to claim the Messiah, but we really want our own mission. Or at the very least, we certainly don't want a mission of sacrifice and of self-sacrifice. And yet what God has provided for us is a self-sacrificing king. The culmination of all of what he has been building and planning, the son of man, will accomplish his kingdom by laying his very self down. And so our call in this, the call to Peter, the call to all of the disciples, is that we must have our missions be reoriented to his. And there's a number of things that I think the text then plays out. First of all, Jesus reorients the cost. So look with me again. Verse 23 and following. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And I want to pause on this for a moment because this is, this is a big deal. They all knew what it was to carry a cross. Lots of people had been crucified. When we talk about this evil oppression of Rome, we're not just talking about, hey, we don't like those guys, but they've been here for a while so we can put up with it. Like if you fought too much, they'd lay you down, they'd pound pound nails through you and then put you up on a stick by the roadside to slowly die as a warning to all others. I don't care what you think about which political party, we're not doing that. But Rome was... And so when Jesus is saying, deny yourself, he's not just saying, you know, hold off on on all the ways that you like to indulge. He's saying, no, you have to live as if you're a dead man. When you're carrying a cross to where you're going, you're clearly not doing your own will. Whose will are you doing? You're done. You're a dead man walking. And what Jesus is reorienting his disciples to is, you are not climbing up to a throne. You are following me to lay your life down, to exhaust all of your resources so that you might be a sacrifice for others. The author and theologian Jimmy Egan says on this, 
in his work, The Imitation of Christ. We normally define self-denial as the opposite of self-indulgence. However, self-denial actually involves a much more difficult battle. Like a gardener who plucks leaves off a dandelion instead of pulling it up by the roots, it is foolish to think that we have grasped the biblical concept of denying ourselves when we are only denying our desires. It is foolish to think that we have grasped the biblical concept of denying ourselves when we are only denying our desires. He says, take up your cross. He's calling to something much deeper. One of the smallest ways that I've experienced this, or I shouldn't say smallest, one of the biggest ways, but still small in comparison to what Christ is calling us to here, is the experience of having children that suddenly takes everything and kind of flips it on its head. And you don't really recognize this to the full depths, at least I don't recognize this to the full depths, until you experience the grocery store tantrum <laughs> where there's this one tyrannical little being who is screaming and causing such a scene where you have to then humble yourself all the way to figure out what is going on and serve them. And it's hard because it's public. Everyone sees this. And the more that you buckle down and say, no, kid, you suck those tears back in, then the less it's going to happen. And so you have to then abandon all of your own pride. You have to abandon all of your own agenda. And you have to figure out, all right, what's going on and how do I serve you? When Jesus says, take up your cross and deny yourself, he's saying, completely lay down all of your own agendas. Humble yourself entirely and publicly walk the way to your own crucifixion. That's hard. When we consider our mission as his people, we might think, well, this is something I'm willing to invest in. This is something I'm willing to tithe towards. This is something I'm willing to help with. I would like to volunteer in this area. I hope that this project goes well. But what Christ is calling us to is much more than volunteerism. He's calling us to death. Another way to say this is he looks around at the apostles and he says, listen, none of us are making it out of here alive. And here's the flip side of it because he lays that out before them too. Um, He says, that's what it is to follow me, but then look at verse 24. I'm sorry, 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? to not follow him, to not follow his mission, to claim the identity, but not the mission or the path, is actually to set yourself up as a rival to God, or even to try to use him as a rival against his own mission. Keep reading with me. 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What he's talking about is, imagine if there were a coup and a whole lot of the people who had been supporters of the king or the president or whomever kind of line up and support the coup, but then 
the current king wins. And then you're standing there in the throne room after having been cheering for the new guy. And then the new guy gets shot. And then what do you do? There you are. And I just want to bring this up because Jesus doesn't bring this as a, hey, watch out. This happens to other people. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to Peter. He's talking to all who would follow him. And he's warning them, not just in an angry, get out of here if you're not doing this right, but in a, like, be careful. This happens kind of way. Because, brothers and sisters, this happens to us. This happens to me. This happens to you, where we hold our missions and our agendas over His, where we hold out for our own power, our own influence, our own strength over His. We hold out for our people, our party, our tribe's power, influence, and strength over His. And in Christ, there is just no room for that. There's absolutely no room for that. Because when we do, then we find ourselves being enemies of God, enemies of the cross, partners with Satan, aligning ourselves with all that is evil and all that would counter Jesus. Matthew, recording the Sermon on the Mount, speaks to this in terrifying ways. In chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And I, I, it doesn't say here, will we not say, Lord, Lord, we... We tried to prophesy in your name, but it didn't really work, and so we were exposed as frauds, and so, you know, we just kind of knew we were wrong. These are people who were on the inside. These are people who got it. These are people who come to church all the time. I mean, if you follow through the Gospels, these are the Pharisees and the priests. These are your pastors and your elders. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But before we get too far in this, I want to also remember, we know the whole story. And what happens to Jesus? Well, first, let's come back. What happens to Peter? Judas shows up, betrays him. Peter pulls out his sword, and what does he do? He strikes off some guy's ear, and Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, Peter, no. And he picks up the ear, and he puts it back on. Gross. Um, he heals the guy. And then what does Peter do? He follows him along, and then Jesus is up for the trial, and, and Peter denies him. And Peter denies him. And Peter denies him. He knows who the Christ is, but how willing is he to go with this mission of self-sacrifice? Absolutely not. What is Peter worthy of? If you follow through this, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. And yet, 
Who does Jesus love? To the point of death. To the point of death that is deserved for denying the true king and the true king's mission. Even today in our day and age, what's the consequence of treason? Death. Even in their day and age, what's the consequence of treason? Death. So I want you to see this mission that God is on, this mission that Jesus is on, it is not to build this huge exalted kingdom. But it's to come and die for those who would build a huge and exalted kingdom. So that we who do build, or at least try to build our own kingdoms, or the kingdoms of our parties, or our our families, or our tribes, or our groups, so that we might, because of his sacrifice for us, lay them all down. Because we have been loved by one who says, even though you do this, even then, yet is my mission to come for you, to come for you, and to never be turned away. That's the second thing that this uh, Jesus' mission reorients. Well, it reorients the reward because even then we might think, okay, good. So we do this mission of laying down, but then Jesus resurrects from the dead, and then, you know, then he comes in his power, and then we get the kingdom, right? But you see in this, even then, Jesus is like, nah, man, it's hearts again. I'm still after hearts. If you go back and you look at the book of Daniel and you trace it through, you know the powers that are being overthrown are the powers of the hearts of those who would rebel against him. And the dominion that is being set up is the dominion of a king who is lord over our hearts as well. And so what is our, what's our, our work towards mission? Well, even here, the mission that we're after is the hearts of our neighbors, is the hearts of our friends, is the hearts of those who do not yet love the Savior who pours himself out for them. The Son of Man's dominion is the heart. Look with me at verse 25. It says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And of course, the implication this is a rhetorical question. He knows it it profits nothing, and so you're supposed to then say, So what what is valuable? But I want you to see this. What is valuable more than the whole world? more than all the wealth and influence and dominion that could be had. What is more valuable than all the power and strength? You recall just a couple chapters before? What did Satan tempt Jesus with? But the whole world, all the immediate power and influence. And Jesus time and again rested on God's word and said, no, that's not what I'm here for. And that is not what my father is here for. That is not the mission I'm on. The mission I'm on is a mission of sacrifice, of laying myself down, of pouring myself out time and time again. Why? And again, come back to this. Because Jesus looked at that kind of power and influence And he said, no, it is much better to have but the heart of the people that he has come to save, which is you and me. And let's pause there for just a second more. Because the mission of God is not just 
global superpower influence. He's God. He can do that. But what does he want even more than that? Well, he wants you. And when those two things are weighed in the balance, he says, it's not even a contest. I want you. I want my people. I want their hearts. And no point along the way does he stop and say, well, this was a raw deal. Every moment, the whole way along, he says, this is worth it, worth it, worth it. I am winning. As he is pinned to the cross, as he is crying out before the Father, he's still going, but this mission is winning. This is worth it. This gets me the right end result. Brothers and sisters, you are worth more to God our Father than the entire world. The reward of the mission is completely reoriented. Now let me also then just say, brothers and sisters, your neighbor is worth more to God than the entire world. He is worth more to God, she is worth more to God than your entire bank account. He and she are worth more to God than your entire career. He and she are worth more to God than your entire, and I don't know, what's the thing you wouldn't want to lay down? Your entire ability to keep the peace in your family. Your entire ability to not rock the boat in your marriage. Your entire sense of, I don't know, dignity, reputation, whatever. I just want you to see when we consider the mission of God and what is it, the mission of God is you. And the mission of God is your neighbor. And God will exhaust all of his resources in order to accomplish it. So finally, the third thing that this reorients is our right now. Because how will you live in light of this? What parts of your own heart or your own mission do you need to sacrifice yourself to accomplish the love of God? Now, hear me rightly in this. What I'm not saying is if you're in a position of power or influence, or if you're you know, even a highly elected official or someone who's just high up in your office or whatever, that doesn't mean you should quit and then go become a, like the, the most obviously servant-hearted job like a janitor. Or, but it does mean that you are to use all the power and influence that you do have as the most servant-oriented position that it could possibly be. You should be a CEO like a janitor in service. You should be an elected official like a janitor in service. You should be, you should be an elder like a janitor in service. You should be a pastor like a janitor in service. You should take every amount of influence that you have and pour it out. Every amount of privilege that you have and pour it out. Every amount of everything that you have and pour it out for those whom God has entrusted into your influence and care. 
So let me ask you, husbands at home, are you tempted to try to have dominion over your house in ruling, self-establishing ways? There is no place for that in the kingdom of Christ. Lay yourself down for your family. Humble yourself before your bride, before your children, before your neighbors, before your guests, so that you might then be the servant washing their feet, and that is your role. Children, would you establish yourselves over your parents and say, I'm grown up now, you have no more to input in my life, leave me alone. Humble yourselves, because you have a Savior who has humbled himself for you. He says, I don't care who you are, what you've done, I will pour myself out and I will wash your feet so that you might then wash the feet of your parents. Angry co-workers, Wash the feet of those people. Embittered friends, wash the feet of your people because we serve a Savior who did not come to establish himself in his own power, but to pour himself out in order to accomplish the mission of God. And that's what this table is that we have before us. Um, in uh, the... During the equip hour for the middle schoolers and high schoolers, we're working through the book of Exodus. One of my favorite sections of scripture just to be in. Uh, We've got the people out of Egypt. They've been through all the plagues. They've been through the Red Sea. They spent a little bit of time in the wilderness. They've come to Mount Sinai, the quaking, thundering mountain of God. But do you remember how they got out of Egypt? Well, they had to have the blood of another painted over their doorpost so that God would say, a penalty has already been paid, I will pass over this house. And you know what they do when they get to the mountain of God? They sacrifice hundreds of bulls. And in Exodus 24, you have the image of Moses speaking to the whole people and he takes this blood and he walks around before the people and before they have even received all of the law and as they're trying to commit to it, even here, God marks them with the blood, with the sacrifice of another. And Moses takes the blood and he throws it out over the people. Gross, right? Um, But because then they are physically marked by a sacrifice of blood so that even as they're entering into the covenant, this relationship with God where he is making them new because of the sacrifice of another that they're able to come before him, they're marked because they're not going to be able to do it, but by the blood of a Savior. And that is exactly who Jesus is, as we've been talking about. And that is exactly the mission that he has been about. And as we come to this table here, what we are doing is we are participating ourselves in this very mission of God so that we are now being marked and even made up by his blood on our behalf. And so when we come to this table, one, it's for everyone. Are you ready to abandon your own mission and rest on his? This table is for you. Are you in that process of constantly finding ways that you would domineer in your own heart and laying them aside? This table is for you. Are you stuck in that moment knowing that you're not ready to do that? Well, this table is for you because Christ is the one who does this for us. But 
If that's not who you are yet, and if that's not where you are yet, then it wouldn't be right for you to come in quite this way. But as we close out this morning, let me remind us that we serve a Savior who does not wait for us to get it right, but has accomplished his mission, whether we do or not, and then invites us to participate. And so as you come to this table, we'd invite you to participate as well. Uh, How we do this here at this church is in a moment, I'll invite the elders to come on up and to prepare the elements. And then we'll invite you to come up also, row by row, so that you can come and partake of the Lord's Supper as well. Once you have it, we'll go and take our seats again. And then I'll invite you from his word um, to partake of the supper together. But please pray with me now as our elders come forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and that you do not wait for us to act, but that you act on our behalf. Lord, I pray for each of our hearts this morning that we would be quick to recognize, even to root out other missions that would invade so that we might then join yours and be humbled before you but then also, Lord, to embody yours and to carry it to all who would be yours as well, locally, within our areas of influence, and even, Lord, around the globe. It's in your name that we pray all of these things. Amen. The elders can now come forward.